The Old Testament reading is found in the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 1 to 5. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson is found in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 21. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. God's grace, mercy, and peace be with us today as we continue our series called Authentic from the book of James. And here we see that God gives us his power, his grace to do the right thing, even when we are wronged. I don't know if you can relate to this, but uh, have you ever been in a parking lot and there's a little voice that says in your head, just walk away. It's, It's okay. And then there's a bigger voice that says, wait a minute, that guy in the parking spot right next to mine, he just dinged my car with his door. Just walk away, the little persistent voice says. Sure, I nicked his car with my door, but it didn't even leave a mark. This guy just put one of those quarter-sized dents in the side of my car. Just walk away, that little voice says. I tell you what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to go put a couple quarter-sized dents in that guy's head, says the big voice. Come on, just walk away. Well, you know that walking away sounds cowardly, doesn't it? Because our nature always prompts us to want to fight back when we've been wronged. Revenge is kind of a wild justice, writes Francis Bacon, or Lord Byron claimed, sweet is revenge. After all, we reason to ourselves, fighting back helps us to get where we want to go. It helps us to protect our interests or or the things that we have. Yes, the Lord knows and sees that retaliation is often something that happens. It happens between husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. 
The Lord Almighty knows about those sneaky uppercuts between bosses and employees. And especially, he despises the backbiting that he observes among his own children, even in the church. But not so fast. Today, we want to see what God has to say to us as his people, how we are to respond even when we seem like we're doing the right thing, but we still get wronged. Well, we're going to learn that God gives us strength to endure even when we're wronged. And as we wrap up our summer series on James, we remember that he's writing to first century Christians who were under attack, especially in Jerusalem by the Jews who were persecuting and suppressing them. And so the question then for that early church was, what should we do? Should we retaliate? Should we demand our rights? Should we dent their wagons the way that they danged ours? Perhaps James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, was in attendance when Jesus spoke from a hillside one time in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he says these words, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or, or Peter, Peter echoes a, a similar thought in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called because Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, when we are wronged by others and in good conscience, we, we did nothing to cause the wrong, our natural inclination is to strike back, to retaliate. But today we see that God would call us to have a different response. It's a supernatural response. Enduring, good, gentle, easy treatment. Oh, that's a piece of cake. That's not hard at all. It's fun, in fact. But when we experience unfair treatment, and when we face times of difficulty, where we are called upon in our faith to have patience, that's when we are told that we please God. We will be blessed. We can find joy in knowing that God is going to be with us that he's going to bring us through, that he'll take care of us. And so we trust in him and we wait patiently for him to bring us through those times, even if people are doing us wrong. Well, before we dig into James chapter 5, we remember specifically that James is writing to Christians, believers in Christ, so that in the end, the power to endure patiently dur during times of attack or times of trial is something that only happens in people who have a living relationship with God through their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that when people are doing wrong to you for doing the right thing, as one of our Lord's own children, your faithful res response is not something that you have to muster up. It's something that God produces in you through the power of his spirit. In fact, under the Holy Spirit, the book of James is, we know it's such a practical book, and in its 108 verses, we find 54 imperatives or commands. 
In fact, in our lesson today, James gives four commands. Two of them are positive and two of them are negative, what we are not to do. The first two are using a Greek verb tense that essentially says, do this right now. (laughs) The last two being negative are saying, don't even start that habit or stop doing that. Let's talk about the first two positive encouragements. And the first one is be patient. Verse 7, verse, first part, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. In fact, the word patience in Greek literally means long-suffering or taking a long time to get upset or angry. To put, us, put it in simplest terms, patient people are not short-tempered. In fact, we say that they have a long fuse. Remember that great love chapter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 starts out by talking about the qualities of love, of agape, God's love. Love is patient, patient. In fact, it's a great quality of God himself. Think about it. He is so patient with us as his people. In fact, Peter in his epistle says that the only reason that Jesus has not returned is because he's being patient with us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all would come to the saving knowledge and love of Christ our Savior. As you've heard us say before, God is more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. In fact, sometimes the reason we may face challenges and even wrongs in this world, is so that the Lord can teach us patience. Patience is described as a fruit or a byproduct of the Holy Spirit living in us, and it's essential for us in our maturing process, in our growing. In fact, there's an ancient Greek motto that says, the first necessity of learning is patience. So when we are irritable and impatient, We cannot learn the lesson that God may have for us. Well, James uses an illustration. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, there is some rich farmland in Palestine, but not that much. And it is only in the very fertile valleys Uh, by water. Most of the time the Jews were consigned to to farm the hill country where there was no irrigation and the soil was so difficult to till. It was back-breaking work for Mr. Jewish farmer whose rock-tossing chores never seemed to end. Well finally when the soil was prepared and the seed was sown in the ground the farmer's eyes would gaze heavenward waiting for the rain. But all of their work would be in vain if there was no rain. Often the rains came in October or early November and would break the stifling heat of summer and then it would cause the seeds to germinate. And then the next rains might not come until springtime, April or May. And it was at that time then the, that the plants would mature and finally they'd begin to produce. So in order for the farmer to receive a good crop, he would have to wait. You have to wait patiently for God to provide the rain. A premature planting or an untimely harvest would spell disaster. So what does that say to us? It means that we can't hurry God's plan. Be patient until the Lord's coming. 
And yes, the Lord's coming refers to to Jesus' second coming, his return, but it also refers to the Lord's coming to rescue us in times when we've been wronged, times when we've been hurt by others or even circumstances. And so just as the farmer waits patiently for God, God calls us to wait patiently for him. The second positive command is this, stand firm. Stand firm, verse 8, because the Lord's coming is near. Now this verse is so insightful. The Lord knows that when people choose not to fight or not to retaliate when bad things happen to them, that what happens is we often retreat into our own self-pity. And instead of throwing ourselves into the waiting arms of God and His grace, somehow we tend to wallow in our discouragement. But to stand firm gives the idea of propping up something that is heavy. And when you've been done wrong, your heart seems heavy. Your attitude and your outlook on life is is pressed down. It gets heavy and you can easily sink down into the pit of despair. Here's the truth. You can't stand firm on your own. It's the Lord's presence. It's Christ's resurrection victory that he won for us by his death on the cross and his resurrection that is the power that we have as a baptized child of God and standing firm in the grace of God in Christ Jesus is the only way that we can stand up under the heavy loads of this world that's why Jesus says come to me all who are weary and burdened I'll give you rest Or Psalm 50 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. And so by God's grace, we patiently trust him even when we face wrongdoing. So those are the two positive. Now let's look at the two negative commands. And the first one is do not complain. Verse 9, don't grumble or complain against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And that word translated as grumble or in many translations complain, it literally means to groan or to sigh. (sighs) This groaning, it reveals our inner attitude of dislike, of bearing a grudge. Complaining is the forerunner of deep-seated bitterness and even dislike and hatred toward other people. And if there's one thing in Scripture that is continually judged by the Lord, it's when His people grumble, when they complain. Because it's a lack of faith. We are saying, Lord, I'm not sure I can trust you enough to know that you're going to take care of me. (sighs) And it's this lack of faith when we grumble and complain that merits the judgment of God, as our text says, who is standing at the door. In fact, James directs our attention to two Old Testament examples of those who had every right to complain about mistreatment, but they did not. Verses 10 and 11, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Well, we only have to go to Hebrews to read about some of the things that the prophets of the Old Testament faced. They were tortured. They experienced mockings and scourgings, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. It even says they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. But just like Stephen in in Acts chapter 7, these suffering saints 
refuse to dishonor God by complaining or casting blame or bearing grudges. No, they endured with faith in the midst of these terrible trials. As did the second example, that's Job. Verse 11, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. For the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In spite of all the agonizing and torturous questions that were posed to Job as everything was taken away from him. And even though he struggled with this in a very real way, he never lost his faith in God. And he says in Job 19, he says, I know with certainty that my Redeemer lives. You see, the flame of Job's faith was never extinguished. Well, the final command that is in our text as we face mistreatment is this. Do not swear. And you might think, well, that doesn't really relate. Eh, It does. Verse 12, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. The Greek word for swear, as used in the New Testament, means to call on something sacred for the purpose of supporting what you're saying or what you're doing. Much of what we call swearing in our culture today is really vulgarity. That too is unbecoming of a child of God. But swearing is making an oath by calling upon the Lord to ensure the truth of something that you're trying to get across, something that you're saying. I swear it's true, so help me God. Well, the Lord is reminding us that we need to use his name properly, and especially when we've been wronged. In our prayers, in our songs of praise, in our witness, our testimony to the world, you shouldn't have to use God's name to verify the truth of what you're saying. Rather than piously invoking the sacred presence of the Lord in casual speech, we face our trials with humility and truth, and faith. You see, truthfulness and plainness of speech is vital for our witness to the world. In the midst of being wronged by someone or something, use the name of the Lord to give Him glory, not to support what you may or may not have done. That's why James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In the end, walking away when we are wronged rather than complaining or swearing or striking back in anger is not a stroll in the park. It's not easy. It's tough. So tough that it requires a supernatural power. How thankful we are that God's presence lives within us as a result of who we are as his people in baptism. That God has taken away our sins. That he has assured us of a home with him forever in heaven. And he promises to us to to, to empower us so that we can face our difficulties with faith and patience. So next time someone dents your car in the parking lot or you're falsely accused at work for something you didn't do or you don't even get the last cookie in the jar, rather than complaining or swearing or striking back, breathe a little prayer. Pray that God would fill you with the power of his spirit that we receive today in his word and just a few minutes at our, uh, if you're live with us at the whole, the sacrament, 
that you face your times of trial with patience and faith to stand firm in the grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.